This retreat, I haven't been uh, giving so many talks as I have done in previous years. Mostly talking to people individually and uh, say a few things now and then. Um, Mostly I get the, you know, feeling just how Sometimes the, te- in the teaching is difficult to take because um, it's it's how it, how it affects you and also how you feel about being taught that idea all kind of you know when it makes up conjures up the impression like you don't know I do know and this is what you're supposed to think and do and, that, and that's not a very pleasant and um, productive perception to have in the mind it's not something I want to encourage or do deliberately but then also recognise well you know there are things it's good to remember and, rec- and know about when you're, when you're ready for it pick up and make use of when you can and live in this situation genuinely we want to encourage people to make the best use of the time and make their lives easier and freer and happier for their own welfare. So, um, I hope you can make use of some of these uh, talks and things. Mostly a lot of the teaching is done just by the, the situation we're in. That's always important to to remember, just u- using a, a structure and you know, like to most every day, at least every every week, or you you know, come back to the structure of a retreat and uh, things like generally the silence gets slips a bit to be kind of loosen up a bit, which is okay. But then to keep going back to when one needs to talk and isn't it better to write things down and that that kind of um, way of u- using the time just to try to honour make use of that frame of reference of silence and then the pujas, morning pujas, evening puja, you know, developing it as something that you kind of, you know, you, you get yourself ready for it 
so you get up early enough so you can feel good when you get there and you reflect on it and you go into it with a feeling of willingness and wanting to you know, give something into it, participate in it. You know, or if you can't make that, at least going with a sort of open mind. Or if you can't make that, at least going in with a feeling of, well, I'll look at the, the aversion and misery that comes up with substance <laughs> inquiry into it. <laughs> you know, the things like, you know, the funny things one can have about being regimented or doing things I don't really feel I agree with or whatever. And just actually starting to look at some of this stuff, contact some of this stuff. This is all the what they call the vipaka, the result and karma, things we inherit from having lived our lives so dishonestly. Uh, most of us, many years of uh, living in the world where one does do things one doesn't really agree with or believe in or feel good about. And um, so you get into that habit. And then whenever you enter into a situation that's set up, is that, you know, so so much of the time we've been in those situations, we've been lying. You know, we, we haven't been allowed to be genuine about it. You don't get a choice. You know, we ask you, do you really feel about your job? <laughs> Are you glad to be here? Yes, sir. <laughs> I love my job. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> so you, you get this situation like this, and you, you know, you almost feel the lies starting to come up. We're expecting to, to have to like something. We don't have to like it, it's really just like. You better go into something. This is rather strange, going to something you don't say it doesn't mean you like it or dislike it. Those are both of those are two positions you can have. They're both, you know. It's okay, you know, waking up is neither about liking or disliking, it's about getting some perspective on these things and uh, what's happening. And then really trying to stay with using something that can actually keep keep you aware of liking, disliking, improving, disapproving and the sometimes the spasms of wrath and and uh, irritation that come up in in, a, in a, just by a, using a structure like this and also the uh, moments of great joy and uh, feeling this is really a really good thing I really love it and then then the feeling of why doesn't everybody love it what's wrong with her <laughs> you know you kind of the t- way the mind tends to attach in that way. Yeah. So you see, the mind normally kind of only works in terms of either you know, approval and disapproval. The two views of bhava and vibhava. And bhava means you really want to become it and get into it, involve it, and, and be that kind of thing. Like really, be a good Buddhist, be a good monk, be a good nun, and that's really great and good, and you know. And then you feel irritated by people who think, well, it's all a bit of a sham, isn't it? You know, and you can feel really irritated because you want to be that. And when you want to be it, that kind of becoming feeling then takes over. And then you feel irritated by people who don't want to be it or put it down. And then all the vibhava, which is when you want to stand back and feel well, you know, when you believe in yourself. And so that you put down other things, say, oh, I'm not this, I'm not that, I don't believe in this, I don't believe in that, I'm somebody who doesn't, I'm free of those kind of beliefs. Well, this is more like the Vibhava, where you're pulling yourself out 
of situations and out of context. And then you tend to look down on people who, do, who put themselves into it as being naive or do-goods. So then you, these are these kind of views and how they you can experience them perhaps in small or great ways. Perhaps they don't happen to you, happen to me. It takes a while, really, to to uh, uh, this kind of clinging, uh, clinging to views, barber and be barber. Takes time to the mind to to really find out how to do anything else. <coughs> well, the process of it is is something that occurs where it makes it more possible to to. Once you begin to get through that, that the mind requires a bit more skill and sensitivity in its own authority. So it doesn't need to be or not be. It doesn't have to adopt things or reject them. It's, and this is that. This is skillful. It, it produces these results. Good. Or, you know, this is unskillful. And you, you, know, you don't have to prove or disprove. And you don't tend to judge or... Other thing, other people. You, you feel you know in yourself, so you feel quite calm. That's we need to know something's working for you, which is great. And then you can pick up a, a teaching or a convention or a system or a training like this, and then use it and realize this what, what if it if it's given you good results, and they're, they're your results. They're, they're something that happened to you. There's not something inherently in the in the form or the context or the teaching inherently it's in all in you so that that kind of discovery where you get a real sense of authenticity in in the experience of dhamma seems to take a while and the process is uh, it's really the process of the mind itself learning to find calm and ease and steadiness in itself. You know, the jitta itself, even into steady and calm and feel relaxed and feel at ease and know its own boundaries and have confidence. This acquiring of faith, confidence, faith. So when you, when you have saddha, it means you can have faith in the Buddha because you have confidence in yourself. One doesn't destroy the other. It's not like, you know, I believe in Buddha and you don't trust anything you think, that you, you can have both. You know, you can say, I feel now I give my trust to the Buddha, and I can take it away if I want to. You know, I, I want to do that. So that gives you authority, doesn't it? When you, you willingly can give, rather than for you've got to believe this, or, you know, this is right and you're wrong. Just You have the possibility of willingly giving to, to, to Buddha Dharma Sangha, and you can do that. And there are certain good results that come out of that when one's ready to do that. You feel participation, you feel a sense of belonging, and you, you can make use of these, these refuges rather than cling to them or reject them or feel doubt about them. You know. So these become marks or nimittas 
Uh, these are limiters are really helpful things. They're like they're like um, guidelines. So when you you know if you're an artist or a calligrapher, then you you, you maybe make rough sketches or you you put tra- you put lines on a piece of paper. Then you can do your artwork on it because you've got these lines underneath it that tell you where pos- you know things are supposed to be positioned, how things work out, and then you can do your artwork on it. And these, I would say, this is quite a good way to look at what nimittas are about. Marks, they're like guide marks. So you have the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha in some way are kind of like <coughs> these, these marks that you make for use. Then you can do your, your creative work on it. You can present your own, you know, your own awareness, your own vitality, your own um, mind on those, using those marks to steer it by so you don't yeah, you know, you've got a convention that that's helpful. But it takes a while for the mind to be able to develop that, that experience. We tend it's a heart experience, limit these limiters. They're not they're not just think, you can't think yourself into it. You can only by the thinking mind can pick up the concept, that's all it can do. They can either agree with it or disagree with it. Judge it. That's all it can do. But it can, by picking it up, present it for the heart to examine and feel out. And then the heart, if you like, the jitta acquires that particular impression. It takes a while for that that inner dialogue to be happening fluently. Basically because a lot of the time we've never really had it going. It's been cut off. Generally, it's cut off, but you wear a tie around your neck, and this generally is the thing that throttles and stops this communication between your head and your heart. You know, it is generally most things where you get people get really uptight. They're always wearing ties. <laughs> I think this is a device to actually stop the free flow of chi between the brain and the heart, because <laughs> most uptight people in the world wear ties. <laughs> the biggest liars generally wear ties. So you've got this thing it cuts it so your head can operate completely independently of any feeling. So when you when you grown up, I used to wear a tie when I went to school. I think that was part the whole reason going to school was to learn to wear a tie. <laughs> <laughs> and a little hat, we have a little hat with a badge on it, which meant, you know you belong to this stuck right where your wisdom eye is supposed to be. <laughs> And another badge stuck right in your heart chakra. So, you know, cut out all this free thinking. You belong to, don't. You know, these, so you've got these tattoos, this thing around your neck with stripes on it. <laughs> it's like you're going to have it in Angus Bull or something like that. <laughs> so they used to teach you other things. The real reason for going to school was to get tattooed with a badge and a tie. <laughs> so you come out in a kind of crippled state at the end of it. <laughs> So, you know, nobody ever asked you what you what your jitter felt about things. So well, you forgot you had one. You had one when you were about three or four. Then gradually wear it and kind of put it, and it gets kind of stamped out in, in favour of brain learning. So it takes a while to get that dialogue going again. And maybe when you were, when you were a kid and you started that dialogue started happening, then you got a bit of 
aggro, a bit of blame coming in, right? You know, it wasn't approved of, and you started questioning, or you started, I don't feel like this. You, know, you got told a bit, you do your duty, shut up, listen, these kinds of things. This doesn't make, then this definitely affects the whole teaching experience. <laughs> And the whole idea of taking the ideas as well, you know. So this is this is very difficult. Where you see that in the time of the Buddha, the teacher, you have the kind of guru relationship with the basically relationship the teacher you're going off from flowers and things like that, and you look after them and serve them and they give you things. And it's a kind of very much like you go to them and ask them to be that for you and you have a kind of relationship. And then some ideas get exchanged probably. But the main thing is the relationship and the service and the participation and the caring and the trust and those things uh, are that kind of real kind of education, if you like, or the context in which the education can occur, and that's really necessary. So, uh, you know, the idea of um, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, in a way, is like to provide that that kind of context of of trust and ease, whereby we can take in ideas because um, we've established these signs in our heart, signs of trust, signs of, of aspiration, signs that lift us up. They're not, they're not brain messages, they're heart impressions. So then, you know, you, you can relax into that and then you, you can take an idea and you can put it in there. How does that feel? Don't know. Okay. Try another one. Okay, and then maybe see what it's like when it's there or not there, and just see what you do with it. Mm. But even establishing the Buddha Dharma Sangha for people can be pretty difficult, um, just because of this, the the uneducated nature of the heart. It's not you don't sensitize to it, to to those things. So you think think of the Buddha. So what? So very often we have to begin more or less groping around and the only thing you can really trust is perhaps something like your own body. You know, so you, you go to that to just get some feeling of how you can ease up and release some of the tension, acknowledge your own body. You know, start, start to actually feed it out and, and get sensitive to your own body experience. And that's probably where a lot of people have to begin to get some kind of context of at ease, connected, participating, feeling okay, getting good results. And then if you noticed, uh, um, like how meditation very often, the way we sit, is actually sitting like Buddhas. And this is a very good way to begin to establish your, your Buddha experience, your Buddha perception. Um, because basically Buddha, you have the, the things that the Buddha, the recollections on Buddha, like um, Bhagavan, Lokavidu, and so on, which you can look at and translate and consider. Yeah, so you, the sense of Buddha is not really to a person, but to these particular qualities that are, can be, when you consider them, can be very beautiful ideas and, and give rise to good, good moods and aspirations. But when you look at the very simple quality of Buddha, as a Buddha image, you see basically it's it's human, it's upright, and it's really it's it's awake, it's bright, it's balanced. 
And then this is a very good way to, when you actually get your own body to feel like that in yourself, then you notice what it feels like. And this is kind of like a beginning of it. This is Buddha in your own body. Now, when you look at a Buddha, you can think, maybe you get feeling it's a man, it's a big man, and maybe you get father images onto it, and your father was a drunk who beat you up, you don't really look towards father images too well. (laughs) So you you scrap, scrap the father image, scrap the male image even. If you kind of think about large men, uh, nice if a woman came the other day who obviously was rather unacquainted with Buddha images and she looked around and saw all these statues and said, well, what are all these hip statues of a woman with a funny hat on doing here? <laughs> so, <laughs> a woman with a funny hat on. <laughs> It's kind of reassuring, actually, because obviously the, the Buddha images, are, images here are not overpoweringly male. <laughs> Maybe if we gave them a beard and hairy legs, they would be. Put <laughs> 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 very short on it. Normally knees, hairy legs, and a beard. <coughs> so, you know, to think... Uh, so, when I sit here, I can actually look at that, and I, there's a, certain things occur to me. I know I get the feeling first of all that it's Buddha. Buddha's often gold, and it's a sh- <laughs> so you get this shining quality. So I notice the shining, and then when I sit and I sit upright, I feel that body shining. Body feels kind of bright and vital. So I relate to that, and that's something I can settle into. And uh, the, up, the general uprightness of the body and the openness. You notice the Buddha is not sort of sitting hunched over or twisted up or leaning on something very open. So he's able to support himself, this kind of quality. And they're just really beginning to, to see, now does my heart move towards that for my own body? Now when I try and look at that and I try to work my own body and my body feels good like that, and my heart, I can resonate to that. My heart feels bright. It tends to make me feel good, calm, aware. So working with it rather than, this is a Buddhist monastery, you're supposed to sit up straight. <laughs> yeah, which is the wrong way to do it. So that's, that's a brain message, isn't it? Rather than, hey, look at this, now what does that feel like to you? What are the messages here? Can you take that in and work with it? So just very simply, then, then to me, even with nothing else, you know, even with no other attributes of Buddha apart from that, then Buddha becomes a recognisable mark in my mind. Recognise that. So that I'm aware of my body. It makes me remember I have to be aware of the, to be aware of the body, to tune up to it and to have that sense of vitality and brightness. And then these other attributes start to fall into place. Yeah. Bhagavan is kind of... It's associated with the word meaning fortune or or treasure. So the Buddha actually is someone who's like a a king in the sense of being someone who's great gifts. And uh, we tend to, because so many corrupt power images... 
of men, leaders in particular, men probably more than women, then we tend to use anything like king or leader is always kind of, kind of something you feel is basically, you know, trust them, or they're heavy, or they're despotic. But basic attribute of kingliness is giving. They're great givers. That's what the true true monarch is about. Grandness. So that quality of feeling grand and being able to bestow gives you a sense of of, uh, of authority in yourself. And being petty or mean, stingy with one's time or one's attention or one's efforts. So that uh, is quite powerful, I think, working with it. And you can participate in that, you see. You take part in Buddha. You, you know, in some way you become it as an experience. And then so that nimitta sign is something that your mind can actually kind of go into. And it's, it's something you don't take literally. I mean, I don't think I'm a Buddha. Definitely not. It's not an idea. But as an experience, it's something one can move into as an experience, feel out recognize it as a useful reference and you don't take it personally everybody can be a Buddha in that sense and but it, so it's not it's purely like a, a valuable metaphor Dhamma the, the, uh, it's really like uh, to me what it says basically is this is your time this is your life it's, it's immediate, not delayed in time. That which you have to realize for yourself um, leads you to investigate, leads you inwards. Saying, this is like giving it all back to you. And that's tremendous. Uh, all you really, like Joseph was saying this morning, all you really have is the moment. And this is very much what that recollection of Dhamma is about. This is your moment. Don't squander it. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't waste it. Don't put it down, don't think it's it's second rate, don't keep saying it's a second rate thing compared with what it should be, it's what it is and so when one practice with Dhamma then it's tremendously uplifting in that in that sense as a recollection Sangha is a it is a it's the humanity to me It's the kind of way in which this human karma process that we're going through can evolve. It's that always, it's the potential, if you like, it's the soul force, the potential for soulfulness, for the true spirituality that we can take part in as a, as a recollection. So those are things, those signs, you know, it's to remember them, recollect them. They are as available as you can make them. Maybe you can't use them. Maybe you gradually get to use them. Maybe you can, you know, use them in this way I've been describing. You know, just relating them to yourself, to aspects in yourself. Do you find that use them as signs? You, your mind actually goes to, and they become more steady and more real. For me, than the other signs 
I'm English, I am 48, I am, I was born in London, I am, you see, I'm not denying those things, I just don't, you know, I might as well say I'm, you know, I'm an alpha rhesus blood type, so, you know, I used to support Chelsea Football Club, um, you know, blue is my favourite colour, you know, what do you want to say? <laughs> Those are ignored how those are all true, but they don't have any real resonance to them. You know, they don't actually move me. I don't feel them as relevant guidelines. But I do feel Buddha Dharma Sangha. I do feel being a disciple of the Buddha to be a, a very much full-on uh, experience for me. It's, a help, it's become a sign in my life. And the beauty of signs is that they... they, they they draw, they naturally draw uh, attention and they become uh, foundations. And we all have this gift or possibility. So in, um, you know, Sanya, the Sanya aggregate, which is an uh, ongoing, on-running function of, the, of, the, of our conscious experience, is sanya is actually the word very closely associated with the English word sign. You see the different similar sounds, sanya and sign. And it is this kind of way everything is being, is, is, so sanya means everything we experience through sanya is like we're seeing signs of what it means to us. And this meaningness, this meaning, this interpretation of things is often happening very quickly, so quickly you take it as being what a thing really is. Because everything is experienced through sanya, it, you, it reminds you of something. You see an object with four legs on it, a little bag underneath it. You know, it's a cow. <laughs> when you're only one years old, you don't know what it is. Eventually, you grow up and think it's a cow. And if it hasn't got one of them bags underneath, don't go near it because it's a bull. (laughs) (laughs) So you get the kind of refinement of perception. There was a bag here that's called an ox. An ox. So... uh, that's kind of that's on running, but all those signs and normally the signing is very much associated with um, not with spiritual practice, not with going deeper, but often with basic survival. You know, this is food, eat it. This is cold, don't eat it. Um, and then all the socialization goes on through that social domesticated through signs, fashion, uh, what women and men are supposed to look like. <coughs> are really signs. And this is, gets tremendously um, abused, in my opinion. So, it, a lot of signing, the signing is, is associated with things that produce passion, excite you, stimulate you, want you to, to get hold of it, to buy it, to grab it, to get it. And... Uh, so it split, it, shat, it kind of takes away your authority, it kind of sends your mind out in greed or aversion, or you get very confused.
So you see something like a sign, like the sign of a, you look in newspapers and things, or advertisements, a, a, a woman's body is a sign that's used as a sign generally of pleasure, uh, say, um, desirable sign. So everything, car insurance, everything, has got female body stuck on it. And generally, you know, um, in a particular contorted way, not just kind of lying down, or it's only got a breast stick stuck forward, and they were never over 35, and they should be advertising old age pensions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, generally kind of twisted, and someone's their hip sticks out, so you generally emphasize all the curves of it. And, uh, you know, you take this, is, I think it should really quiet something people. Quite angry about that sometimes because it's you realize just you know just continually doing this to human bodies, so you know the world bound up with that kind of tension and stress. Not only if you actually have to have a female body, being have one, and then you're trying to make it look like one of these forever, um, you know, it's really a pain, and the amount of kind of um sexual projection and fashion and, and money that goes into all that kind of thing. Real real abuse of, of, of a body. So we don't so that that's a sign that, that tends to just rob you, actually, of uh, robs everybody. Robs women of their Dignity, authority, and robs men uh, of their of their steadiness, and it all goes into just money. You know, uh, you know, you can't participate in it. If you do, it's just all, it's just a mass of greed and passion. So various these so very often like the whole what we seem to experience as the external world is just signs and some of them are deliberately uh, concocted with the aim towards greed or aversion. Um, greed and delu- and hatred and delusion. So these are these are the underlying signs, greed, hatred, and delusion of a lot of Worldly, what we call worldly stuff, is saturated with it. It's all scrambled up, so you don't really see it very clearly, um, sub- and subliminally and subconsciously. So then, when you actually take your own experience of a body as a sign. It's not really even a physical form anymore when you actually experience it inwardly with awareness. There's no particular form as such. The form is a kind of a, a sort of you know, feeling. And then that's a, that's a sign that tends towards calming and steadying your attention. So you can use that, the, that sign as something you can rely on and make use of in terms of what, what's a body about. Just the one you can know is this one, when you've got. That's what it's about. 
And that really helps you when you also when you're kind of looking at other bodies. These are just visual impressions, aren't they? That you start signing, making signs out of. And then, you know, what we tend to consider in this practice is more like this is a visual form. Solid. It's a shape to it. Moves around. So? <laughs> yeah. And then that, that just kind of leaves a lot of, lot of space. Uh, and a lot of uh, ability to then uh, act freely. You can act sort of kindly or compassionately. You can, you know, you can turn attention to it, take it away. It's not, your attention isn't dragged towards it. You can turn attention to it. You can think, well, now's not the time. You've got a lot more freedom. So that's uh, using the, you know, use a different sign of the body. Body is just elements or a shape. But if you think it like that, then you can maybe, as an idea, then you may think, well, that doesn't seem to, that seems a pretty cold thing to say about a body. But as an idea, of course, it's different. But as a nimitta, as a sign, as a heart experience, then that's, it makes the mind steady. As a brain experience, we could become callous with it, saying, you know, you've got a hole in your body, well, it's just the shape, isn't it? You know, you're bleeding to death, that's just red, isn't it? <laughs> as a brain thing, then, then of course it would go wrong. As a, uh, you know, in terms of, of the, what we think about and how we relate to these things, then you to use intelligence as well. What makes a body healthy? What keeps it clean or tidy? What gives it strength and vigor? You know that. So, but then that is led by the underlying impression of I've made peace with this. I'm not attracted to it. I'm not repelled by it. I have no particular angle on it. And so the nimitta has helped us to, to create that space where we can act truly, freely, and wisely in terms of bodies. That's how you can, a nimitta is a useful thing. In, uh, in training here in this life is actually, you know, as meditators, then this place is, is studied with them. And one is supposed to, as a meditator, cultivate the ways to make use of these, of our whole living situation here, as, a, as signs. And the bodies are here, they say, this is a nun, this is a bhikkhu, this is this like that, you know, as, as things you can kind of you get particular way, ways in which you relate to that, to that. Those things mean something to you. And uh, so, when one's ready for this, then you begin, say, you, know, you come to a monastery and you, so you work with a few 
difficulties until you steady up, and then you see if you can take on the sign of a robe, like a brown robe. I mean, even an agarikin wearing kind of white robes and something that's a bit kind of formalized, can you make, handle it without feeling like, you know, you look like a, in a hospital or something, or, <laughs> you know, to actually be able to use these things without think, feeling terribly frustrated or irritated by them, or the sign of, say, simplicity, the limiter of simplicity. And then if you can make use of it, then the idea is you can then you can seek going forth. And so you really then give yourself to robes, bowl, um, as, as signs, as things that actually you can make use of in your meditation. Or, so they provide the sign of simplicity and uh, tranquility and ease, the renunciant signs. You bowl. So as a summoner, your basic possessions are your bowl, robes, razor, needle and thread, just a few things like that. That's it. So you consider it like that. Then, you know, maybe you've got other stuff. But that, that's, this is just, this is kind of the paraphernalia that you may require for a particular circumstance. But your basic who you are is this robes, bowl stuff. This is, these are your limiters, these are your signs. I always like to keep my bowl my room, my travel, when I go, and it kind of, I use it like that. This is what I'm about. I'm not a meditation teacher. I'm an arms mendicant. Because yeah. if you don't use these signs, other signs start coming to you. The mind looks for them. And we get so kind of ideas about well, who am I? Kind of thing, and uh, all the sort of ways in which the mind can proliferate about one's true nature. My true self, or my real nature, or my one mind, and realize that the Buddha never used these, never used any kind of nimitta, any kind of sign, to say what we are. You say you're someone who uses a robe, uses a bowl. So you, you, you get, you, know, you start to take away that kind of equation, I am this. And you say, I use this, I'm involved with this, I participate in this. I care for this. I pick this up. Yeah, and you, the more you use it, the less you have to feel you are it. If you don't feel you are it, you don't feel you don't. You have to de- don't have to deny it either. You don't have to say I'm not really a monk. You know, really, this is just a convention. Because yeah, sure, it's obvious, but then everything else is a convention too. So you say I use this. I use a robe. Use a bowl. That's what I'm doing. This is where you can find, I use the Dhamma Vinaya. That's where I live. It's not what I am, it's what I do. And that, that's really helpful to start to look at some of the ways in which we normally establish our identity and see them much more as things I use and act upon rather than things that I am. You don't get so defensive about it. It doesn't even need to be that good. Well, that great, you know, to say, well, nowadays, you know, really monks should wear brown jumpsuits with zips on them, more 
or convenient. Because it's not about being convenient or useful or liked or acceptable or up to date. It's not about that. It's just, you know, it's, it's a whole relinquishment of this I am by, wearing, by using something that you don't really, it's just, that's the beauty of a tradition. It's just something that came along. You don't have to say, I am it. It's just something I'm using. So you can kind of rub out that inner center where all the signs are lurking. I am, I am, I must be, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not, I am, but I'm not. Yeah, so I'm, this is really what I am. It's kind of rub it all out. No signs. Leave it signless. This is the idea. If we can we use signs so that we can also understand experience as signless. So everything that I am now becomes something more that I relate to. What I am. The word doesn't mean anything, it's it's signless. And the more fully one can participate in these, um, like the use of the robe, the bowl, then the more clearly, because now you, you pick it up, every time you participate in these, um, like you use the robe, the bowl, then the more clearly, because now you, you pick it up, every time you pick it up, the very picking it up is immediately giving you the message, this is something you use, not something you are. So you don't have to deny it or make it or prove it. Just use it. And then, you know, like, you, you can also put them down. I don't, you know, I can, I can take my robe off. And, uh, and this is what makes it useful. Like all the conventions here, the things that make them useful is that one can pick them up and one can also put them down. If it wasn't like that, they would be dangerous. So, for example, our, you know, even though like our hierarchy and all that kind of thing is useful as long as you can pick it up willingly, we'll do this, and then, okay, now we put it down. We can find situations and places where we can just be with each other, talk with each other, participate and commune. Because it's always so important to recognize that one of the standards of Sangha is it's, you, you, you're said to be someone who lives in communion. And communion is very much about communicating. Yeah. And so that sense of Sangha a really good, one of the good signs of it is to recognize it as, the, as a field of participation. You can see it also as, the, as a sense of the recluse, the alone, which is true also. In one way, we're always utterly alone. In our signlessness, we're alone. And what we are, or what we're not, or whatever you like to call it, we're alone. And yet, in our action, we're connected. And that's a really important thing to remember. The more one does feel connected in terms of action, the less action becomes something that one is so self-conscious, proving, narcissistic, worried, uptight, frightened, guilty about. It's just 
you know, this is my act. I haven't got my act together yet, you know. So I'm, I'm just starting. This is, this is what I'm at. This is my performance. That's not what I am. What I'm doing. And so, uh, in a way, the hierarchy kind of gives us a bit of space to say, look, you know, I just got here. You know, I'm kind of still fumbling around. And that's fine. So it's a useful convention like that to, to give people enough space. Say, if you're an Agarika or a novice or whatever, then you've got a little more space and this hierarchy actually is saying that it's not saying you're inferior it's saying you don't have to you know be set the standards and then you look up the line for what standards you can pick up and you try to relate to those and participate in it so that even so that the, the positions are actually useful enough limiters so when I personally started really picking up the training, I was really glad to just be the junior monk. Junior monk I, gave me something I could, could use, say, learn the chanting, um, learn how to make robes, learn how to look after my robes, um, learn to, to, to relate to a teacher. You know, as things that are not intellectually particularly great discoveries, but as as communion experience, participation experience is very valuable to learn to do, to actually get involved with that. So by that time, I was ready for it. First, when I first looking towards spiritual practice, then I'd read books that would be quite interesting, sit on a beach, uh, <laughs> lie around and read Krishnamurti, which is quite a nice way. Didn't actually create any stress at all. <laughs> Because he wasn't there to tell me anything, you know, you read the book, you put it down when you're finished with it. Great. Okay, next thing, we're going to Taoism. Uh, <laughs> and then when I was in India, I remember I was kind of looking for a teacher, and I came across this uh, ashram, Rajneesh ashram. And I couldn't get in there. I tried three times. Every time I get to the door, I go, oh no. The problem was that I. You know, Anything to say about Rajneesh? Just that I wasn't. I couldn't pick. I couldn't take a human teacher. I wasn't ready for it. It, it just didn't. It, it. I couldn't give to a human teacher, which is what really required. I could take from a book, but I wasn't ready for it. So then when I went to the uh, Buddhist monastery, the nice thing was that, that at first, you know, just as beginning, he didn't really follow the Buddha as a teacher, and he's safely dead. So, <laughs> you know, his nice image stuck up in the corner, you don't have to worry about it, you can ignore it for days on end. And then gradually you get around to maybe able to use it, and then, then the, the human teacher is always kind of, you know, the Buddha's the teacher, and the, 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 the monk or whatever is someone who can actually try to explain what the teacher meant. You know, see, that's quite skillful means. You don't have, the teacher's not the human teacher, not the guru, in these situations we're in. But after a while, I felt it was, I was really glad of the opportunity to actually take part, participate in a te- with a teacher, and someone who's so someone who represented. Sila, Samadhi, Banya. You know, whatever they were like as in their lives, or whatever they were moral. Somebody was actually living a 
you can actually you can actually look at the the rules as he does do all these things. It's true, you know? and he taught sila in a very unambiguous way, and he taught samadhi in a straightforward way, and he taught banya in a straightforward way. So okay, that's my teacher, sila samadhi banya. This person is capable of carrying that for me. They're capable, they're big enough, and they're firm enough to be able to carry that impression for me. So not everybody's capable of doing that. <coughs> you know, you, so you start to project on a teacher who can't do it, whose sealer isn't up to scratch. And then you've either got to do all sorts of double takes on like, well, he's transcended it all, or, you know, or I shouldn't really have expectations on a teacher who's really there to wait and watch my mind. And, yeah, okay, but you don't get the same, you don't get the firming up. You just get this kind of continual abyss of confusion and, and views come opening up. Because then when you have a teacher, you take dependence, it's like you're saying, can you, I, I regard, can you carry this for me? Can you carry this sign for me? Yeah. And so somebody who can do that, then you, you, you take that, and then you look at them in that way. You recognize this human being, so, but you a human being carrying these things for you. So then you, you can relate to them as a teacher in that way. And then uh, uh, certainly in my experience, the skillful teachers are the ones who say, well, you can do that too, and they, they'll allow you to do that, but they won't, they won't feel embarrassed about it or awkward. They'll allow you to kind of serve and look after them so you feel you're actually giving yourself, but they won't actually take advantage of it. And they'll also quite clearly demonstrate, you know, this is the teacher, and now this is, this is me just as a human being. <coughs> You know, we can sit and chat, we can go for a walk or whatever. So you, you, you don't, very clearly it's understood, this is a sign, it's not a person. And the sign is for you, it's not for the teacher. teacher doesn't have to be the teacher. doesn't need the sign. So then it's for you, so you can actually feel that quality. And that's very helpful. Because if you don't have that, what do you have? Relationships with if you don't have these kind of relationships, this is a teacher, this is a fellow monk, this is a sister, so on. You don't have those. What do you have? What happens in between human beings? Ooh, complex, isn't it? Like if you're a man and wife, then you know this is wife, this is husband. You use that as a kind of sign. You've got something to hold there when all the karma comes up and all the you know all the opinions and views and emotions and feelings start churning away and projecting and spewing all over everybody <laughs> then you've got something to say you know well hang on let's get back to this one to this kind of bedrock thing and not to deny the rest of it but it gives you some way of actually working with all the, the ways in which one's mind can can dump and will dump <laughs> and doesn't know to do anything else and actually needs to dump so with teachers also you recognise this is someone who may be capable of taking my hatred <laughs> you, know, you, really, you, know, you want to get really close then it's, you recognise it's bound to happen you have the kind of love and hate and fear and mistrust and he thinks I'm useless and the shame and guilt experiences. So, you know, those are the kind of things that happen. 
um, then I'll be strong enough to take that. Can we handle that without getting meshed up in it? Can we say, okay, we go back. Now we can look. We can relate to this stuff that's going on. Now we can talk about it, and we can look at it, and we can meditate on it. Then you've got something that's really valuable, really useful. But you don't have that unless you've got this kind of sign there to give your mind something to actually bed itself into. So I, I come from this position of I trust and respect you basically, and this is what's happening within that. That's really a helpful thing to have. Without that, then we just end up. Uh, there's no, there's no mooring. There's no, there's no um, center pin to 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 contemplate karma. One's human karma with other human beings around. And sangha is really, for me, that that's its quality. So all the weirdos and oddballs I live with are <laughs> these are my brothers and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> So picking up a sign, and then, then if you attach to it, then you know, then you expect, don't you? You're supposed to be my teacher. You're supposed to be always like this. You're supposed to be the junior monk. You should do this. Your duty is to do this. Nuns should behave this way. You're supposed to do that. Then, then you, then there's the attachment to it, isn't it? And then, you know, we probably do that quite a bit too. So the saying alive is a way of actually. So being in the in the mill of all that and getting it ground around and thrashed out until you can actually leave each other signless. I don't know who you are actually. But I'll relate to you like this and I'll receive what's coming, not as yourself, but as part of the activities of your process. I don't have to know who you are. No. That's better. Yeah, of course, in meditation you develop, um, you can, if you, once you begin to work with this way of, of relating to experiences, of course, as the bone body becomes a sign, the breath is a very helpful sign. Ideally, you know, when the breath is held or, or related to or received into your heart, then you begin to exp- uh, really understand what right effort is. So, first of all, just receiving your own breath, receiving your own body as just as it as you as it touches you, as it resonates within you. And then maybe you're not very good at that. You get a little flicker. But actually, the the more that you you that you cultivate this whole way of training, the more you you know, get more receptive, and you also begin to see this is where this is where your enjoyment is. Enjoyment is in that being fresh and open, and feeling the touch of life as it happens, in all its strange patterns. This is where your bliss is. It's also risky but in for a penny (laughs) 
what does the Siddha do? He lies. We could born in utter chaos and would die in it, so why not live in it? Manage to survive. And then be touched by, by a breath. Now this, to me, is much more skillful than the idea of now I will do some anapanasati and now I will concentrate on my breath. Because immediately you go up to your head, you get tight in your head, I do, and you try to do it. And the harder you try, you do get some in there. But the whole thing is characterised by the experience of strain. And you think, and that naturally relates to the effort. So effort equals strain. More effort, more strain. And then in other words, we think right effort generally means the most strange you can get. <laughs> <laughs> this is like going to the doctor who says, well, what you need to do, you've got a cold, is to take a cup of aspirins and stay warm, and then taking a bottle of aspirins and sitting in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> Which would kill you. There's not more, it's like what's right. What's right is, is a sort of balance, isn't it? How to stay relaxed and open and sensitive and just keep that persistent. You know, what's happening? That kind of inquiry, investigation, and keep putting down the, the distractedness and the unskillfulness and the tightness and the, and the drowsiness. And, you know, just get real. Let's be here with this thing. You know? This, to me, is right effort. And it's characterized by chanda, which means there's will, there's willingness. And uh, virya, which means there's persistent energy. Jitta, which means you've got your heart in it. And vimanksa, which means it, you, you inquire, you, you deliberate, you, you investigate, you evaluate what's going on. And these are the characteristic of effort. Now, to my, my experience, anapanasati doesn't work unless you have right effort. And uh, so, one could, and it's even if you spend 10 years actually getting it wrong, and figuring, why, I keep, why does my mind keep wandering? Why does my mind keep wandering? Because anapanasati is no fun, that's why. Why is it no fun? Because your heart's not in it. You, didn't want to, you don't really want to do it, you just think you should do it. And your heart's not in it, your brain tells you you're supposed to do it, then eventually, you can, when you've done it long enough, you'll be enlightened. Phew. <laughs> So there's no, there's no real jitter in that. That's all just uh, that's 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 uh, bargaining. That's not giving. So this is not right effort. Right effort is a feeling where you you know you kind of you you enjoy and you go to the enjoyment experience and you know how to do that. So it's always aimed towards what makes you feel well-being and and established. Then the breath becomes a sign of that well-being. You know, like. Nobody's bothering me. I can breathe in and out. I've got anything to do. I can breathe in and out. I haven't got any, I've got a tie around my neck. I can breathe. <laughs> I'm allowed to breathe, you know. When I breathe in, my body feels kind of more vitalized. When I breathe out, I feel relaxed. This is very nice. And then just so the mind, then your attention tends to go to that because it's enjoyable. And this is the nimitta of the breath. Rama Vihara is the other great sign that uh, that you cultivate. Um, you know, this is like a, a, a metta karuna mudita peka. So this is what makes uh, 
um, community life possible, without these it's not possible. Even if you don't deliberately cultivate it, just living in a community and surviving, these things will actually get cultivated. You may not even be able to find words for them, but basically if you manage to hang in in a community without going rigid and kind of cutting yourself off, um, you know, then, then you've done it somehow. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, if you just relate to people through the brain, it's always finding irritating, finding fault. You're always not, not participating in people's process. You stand back and you keep judging. And everybody is doing it wrong. I mean, everybody. You just and doing it deliberately to annoy you also. <laughs> <laughs> the, the practice of Brahmihari is opening the mind beyond the view. It really works with the sense of views and opinions. So you just kind of open up and you receive what you experience and you watch your mind convulse with indignation. It's just okay. Right, so it's indignation. It's just receive that, let it come, be with that, let it go. This is called metta. Mm. You know, you know ground basic work of, of Brahma Vihara is like just being able to open up and take and let people come in and then let what arises come and, and, and express itself and then let it, let it have it say. And you, one find, I find that one, once you begin to allow these things to be expressed, um, even, the defi- even the kind of crazy, ugly things to be expressed, there's a background field of benevolence there. To be allowed to speak is a great, um, great gift, isn't it? You know, freedom to speak. And even if we have freedom to speak, Technically, in a in a country, we don't have freedom to speak socially. We can't. Other things you can't say to people. Eventually, you can't even say things to yourself. So, freedom to speak is actually like I allow. You know, that's 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 the benevolent gesture. I allow. I allow. And recognizing, well, sometimes you know people are, can't actually carry. You know, it's, it's wrong to expect other people to be able to carry the amount of indignation and wackiness that my mind can come up with. <laughs> but maybe, you know, I can work here to be able to, to carry it myself. Yeah. So that, that, that quality of metta is in Brahma Vihara, to my mind, works on the level of, of making it possible the permission to, 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 to speak, to say, once things are expressed, it's like there's a kind of relief. You know what it's like when you're in trouble and you find someone who listen to you? Either they don't solve your problems, just there's, there's something very helpful about that alone. So these particular uh, signs are to be cultivated, and you recognize more clearly that's the fundamental quality of what it really is about to be human, is Brahma Vihara. We can do that. When we do that, then you do to yourself, or when you when you can actually take somebody else's stuff in that way, then you, to my mind, I always feel like a proper human being. I feel the dignity and the, the and the firmness and the 
wisdom and the compassion of being a human being, rather than just reacting in some kind of animal way, you know, curling up in the corner and spitting back. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, tail between legs running off. The animal world. So this is gives you one kind of idea of what it's like to be a human, a full human, is the some of these signs, the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha, the breath, the Brahma Vihara, these are all skillful cultivations to, to come to terms with. And the beauty of a sign, as I said, is that you, is it, you can pick it up and you can also let it go, but you let, let it go in the way by fully picking it up. It's rather like uh, working on the signs of aversion, that we, the, 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 the defiled signs gives you that understanding. That you can only really let your anger go when you fully, you know, when you fully let it in. Otherwise you don't let it go, what you do is you, you kind of push it away, or you scurry it out the back door, or you make an excuse for it, or you feel slightly awkward about it. But you can only let it go if it comes from a position of when it's arisen, it's been heard, there's equanimity, there's acknowledgement. There's no more business with that one. There's, a, there's equanimity. And then the thing has said its say, and it, is, it hasn't got anything to hold on to because the mind is, is even. It's not stimulated, it's not cringing. So it, it's like you've got, the mind doesn't stick to the mind, it slides off. Then you don't really let it go. It, it, this is just a way of expressing it. You come to that place where the thing's true characteristic of impermanence is experienced and its true characteristic of selflessness is experienced and its true characteristic of emptiness has no valid form it's just a gesture of, out of confusion and ignorance this is how the, these use these skillful signs in order to deal with the unskillful signs and in the skillful signs themselves, then as you cultivate, you can begin to practice with those in the same way. There's no real breath. Breath is what? Feeling. What's a feeling? You know, it's just just something that you you call a feeling. You 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 move with it. When you don't move with it, when you don't get interested in it or disinterested in it, the mind is equanimous. So the the feeling, the more closely you get to it, the feeling thins and becomes transparent. Not because you, you want to stop feeling, but because you really want to feel and know what it is. So that because you want to know what it is, you don't want to just react to it and grab it or push it away. And when you don't do that, the feeling it's like it's like grabbing a cloud, it's there and it's not there. So even a skillful sign like the breath is something that you the more you work with it, the more you see that it too it's empty. So you don't stand on it, you don't 
don't make an issue out of it. You don't say, you know, this is what I am, or everybody should do this. You know what you've done, you know what you need to do, you know how to do it. <laughs>